Okay, so we're um, doing the kingdom of God, working through the book of Matthew, and we'll probably be doing so for a number of years by the look of it. Um, but we're currently talking about kingdom living, and uh, we've just finished Matthew 5, and we're moving into Matthew 6. And in Matthew 5, we were looking primarily at relationships in the kingdom. And chapter 6, we want to look at secrets of the kingdom, secrets to uh, kingdom living, really. And today, I just want to look at one verse, which is uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. And it's this. It, it goes, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That's what Jesus says. If you do you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And this verse acts uh, as a kind of a summary of all that Jesus then goes on to teach in verses 2 to 18, uh, which in turn are illustrations. So that section in 2 to 18 are illustrations for the points that Jesus makes in verse 1. So if we get what Jesus says in verse 1, we'll understand the rest of what he says too. So that's the idea. And that's my aim today, that I just want to explain that to help us for the rest of the series. So, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would impact us with your word right now. And we've just been overwhelmed by your presence amongst us as we've worshipped, as we've praised you, and as we've known uh, you coming amongst us. And, Lord, we pray that you just keep coming on us now as we listen to your word. We just bring revelation and bring it to life for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me just give you a bit of context for this verse. In the previous chapter, in chapter 5, Jesus focused on internal righteousness. So he he talked about that which is given to us because of Jesus' fulfillment of the law in verse 17. So that through chapter 5, we get to see both our inability to live up to the law and our potential to live differently in Christ. So remember, one of the things we've said several times during the series, is that the law is no longer our condemnation, but our revelation for all that he has done and our liberation for all that we can be by his grace. So, And chapter 6 marks a subtle change of emphasis. It's still about the righteousness of those who are part of the kingdom, surpassing that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which Jesus said in 5.20, but with a different application. So, Jesus, in this chapter, is talking about religious practice. I can't find another word other than religious, so I'm going to have to use the word religious to describe Christianity. I don't think Christianity is a religion, but it's the best way I can describe it in this context. So Jesus is talking about uh, religious practice and he, he turns to the kind of righteousness that is lived out in the life of the believer in their public religious life. So practicing your righteousness is a kind of shorthand for religion worked out in the community of believers, which we call the church. So for us, in what Jesus is saying, it's, it's about how we do church together. It's about how we do public church public ministry. It's about how we do public worship. And Jesus is looking in this section at the hidden attitudes of the believer in religious performance or practice. 
And he illustrates this by saying it's about when you give to the needy in verse 2. It's about when you pray, verse 5. It's about when you fast in verse 16, which are clear references for the Jews especially who are listening to him, that Jesus is talking about the disciplines of their religion. And they would have all been involved with giving to the poor. That was part of the Jewish way. They would all be involved in saying their prayers. They had prayer books that they would follow. They had a religious calendar which would have included both feast days and fasting days. And actually, if you think about it, you can probably see these three attributes in all major world religions. It could even be said that these three things, giving to the poor, prayer to God, and fasting, are the things that could define what religion is. So Jesus isn't saying these three things are wrong. No, that's what we do. We all do this as part of our commitment to God and to one another. But Jesus is saying we need to be careful that when we do these things, we don't do them for the wrong reasons. To be seen by men, to be well thought of by them. Because Jesus is interested in the secret life of the believer the hidden motives and the desires that are behind any public outworking of religious practice where we are seen by men. But hold on a minute, isn't that a contradiction? And if you know the Sermon on the Man, maybe you've already been thinking this. Because in Matthew 5 he says, I want you to let your light so shine before men that they might see your good deeds. And yet here he seems to be saying the opposite. I don't want these things. You don't want to live so that you're seen by men. So what's that about? Well, it's the difference between good works and good religion. See, in each case, Jesus is anticipating different audiences for uh, these good works. We need to let the light of our good works shine in the world without fear to demonstrate our faith. And it's a kind of a warfare. Light shines in darkness, exposes things, and changes lives. Light overcomes darkness, and the kingdom is advanced. But when it comes to other Christians, other religious people, people in the church, we need to be careful about our motivation for the good religion that we do. Because it can be very easy in those places to to do things just to be well thought of by other Christians. So in a Religious gathering like a church, giving sacrificially, praying passionately and fasting are attributes of our faith. They're highly thought of so that when we do these things well, we would tend to think highly of people that did them. And so we would praise them and say, wow, what an amazing prayer person they are. Or, My goodness, they're fasting again. And we would credit them with that. And in a context of other Christians, that would be something that would be highly praised, whereas in the the workplace or in the world, people wouldn't see that as important at all. And so I've sometimes felt the pressure in religious gatherings, if you like, especially amongst other church leaders, to, to make sure that my prayers and my contributions are theologically sound, especially in New Frontiers, church leader gatherings, I've got to make sure that they sound right. And so I found myself thinking about the right word or phrase and will I be judged or will I be excommunicated? Well, probably, you know, especially as I preach in these sort of environments now, I kind of think, oh my goodness, that's what Jesus says we've got to be careful of. What are you living for, for the praise of man or for the praise of God? And so it's here that we need to be careful because Jesus says that in those contexts your motivation can get compromised. 
So when we practice our righteousness before others, the question that arises is, are you being real? Is that an authentic contribution? Are you faking it? Does what you do in public honestly reflect who you are in private? That's what Jesus is getting at here. You know, one of the things that has concerned me about some of the leader gatherings that I've been to is how often we only hear about the good things that are going on. <laughs> uh, we only talk about the successes, and it seems like we're, we find it hard to talk about our failures and, and our struggles in those contexts. So last time I was asked to speak at one of these leader gatherings, I told them everything that has been going wrong recently and how God has rebuked me and put me back on the right track. And I was inundated with people after wow, thank you for being so authentic. I said, no, this is reality. It isn't always easy to be a Christian or to lead a church. And so for Jesus, it comes down to which audience is more important to you, that of other believers or that of the Father who knows everything about you anyway. You can't fake it with the Father. And in essence, Jesus is warning us in this section of teaching about the religious spirit getting into the church, into the gatherings of believers, for us to be become more concerned about what other believers think of us than to prize our connection with the Father. And so we're going to keep coming across this over the next few weeks as we look at the rest of Jesus' teaching. So I thought it might be helpful at the beginning of this series to just explain what we mean by religious spirit. Because there's a lot of things out there about it and what it means and that kind of thing. So I just want to tell you what I understand by religious spirit. I want to talk about the nature of the religious spirit. And in essence, a religious spirit is that which seeks to substitute religious activity for the power of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And in the church, it means to be weakened, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul says, have nothing to do with those kind of people. That's shocking, isn't it? In a church context. Having a form of godliness, but no power, avoid those people, Paul says. That's in 2 Timothy 3, 5, in case you think I just made that up. And Jesus describes the religious spirit as the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 16. And he warned his disciples there to beware of the leaven, beware of the yeast, meaning that the religious spirit operates like yeast does in bread. It doesn't, oh, excuse me. (laughs) It doesn't add substance or nutritional value. It just inflates it. It makes it look more than it is. It makes it look better on the outside than it does, than it actually is on the inside. Puffed up bread. And this is completely opposite to authentic Christian living. And actually the religious spirit will judge authenticity and undermine or disqualify those who try to live that way. A friend of mine uh, spoke at a very well-known Christian conference And he decided that he wanted to be really honest about some struggles that he had been having recently. He said, I went out into the woods and I saw something I shouldn't and I looked at something I shouldn't and I knew I shouldn't have done it. But I just want to tell you guys, I sinned. But I've put it right with God. 
And he shared this very bravely in front of all these national leaders. And he was shunned by that audience. And he's never been asked to speak again. That's the very opposite of what I would have felt. I would have thought, well, that's a guy I can trust if he can be honest with us like that. I want to follow a guy like that. There's the religious spirit. It closes down authenticity. It judges it. It confines people that want to be authentic. So here are some of its characteristics. There are many, actually, but there's just four that I want to just touch on with you. First one is that it's all about outward appearance. A characteristic of a religious religious spirit is an emphasis on outward appearance. It's the way people look. It's about jewelry. It's about hairstyle or even dress. Even though the Bible says that God looks at the heart, people with a religious spirit judge by outward appearance. Uh, so, for example, when when Alison reached the age of 13 in the church that she was part of at that time, she was told, right, now you're 13, you should be wearing a hat in church. You should be wearing a head covering uh, to show your submission to God and the elders. Uh, but this was imposed on her. So whatever the condition of rebellion that might have been in her heart, as long as she was wearing a hat, that's fine. <laughs> Nothing to do with what the inner person is feeling and the resistance to that legalism. As long as things look all right on the outside. But it's not just about religious clothing. You know, in our churches today, we can have just as much trouble with the right brand of clothing. <laughs> Or the right style. We want to fit in. Or we have an unhealthy concentration on image. Or coolness. One of the greatest barriers to, uh, to, to passionate worship is coolness. Not expressing ourselves emotionally. Not letting our emotions get out of control. This morning would have been a nightmare for the religious spirit. Because we were dancing and doing silly things like waving tambourines. But wasn't Steve Wicking good on the tambourine, everybody? Yeah. <laughs> so I've never really had to worry about coolness, personally. But. Secondly, it's all about performance. Fundamentally, this is the, the religious spirit is about a man-made effort to please God. It's about following certain rules or regulations to gain acceptance or to have a sense of achievement in religious life. And it's very easy for any of us to slip into this one, actually. And it's something that God has been speaking to me about recently, and it came to head uh, about a month ago. I was getting ready for the meeting. It was just after Easter. I can't think quite when that was. And to be honest, it's been a bit tough over the last few months with the building and everything and lots of other stuff that I've been involved in. And uh, and on top of that, I just got exhausted. And so when I went off on Easter, I, I just like died for the week. <laughs> and uh, so it was getting back to church and I was having one of those prayer times, you know, one of those kinds. And I was a bit grumpy about coming to church. Sorry, it even happens to me. And then God said something to me really, really vivid. He said, I like those times when you used to say, I haven't a clue what I'm doing. And I'm just trying to follow the Holy Spirit. 
Now, it's a phrase I've often used in leading the church, and it's even part of one of my vision talks. Guys, just want you to know we don't have a clue what we're doing. (laughs) One of my early vision talks. And then a while ago, I think it was sometime last year, I suppose, the thought came to me that perhaps it was wrong for me to keep saying this. Perhaps I'm even undermining my own gift or my identity. So I stopped. And then the Holy Spirit went on to say, the thought that came to you last year didn't come from me. You've believed a lie, and I've never said that. He said, you've begun to become too confident in your own ability, and I want my church back. (laughs) That's the other thing I'd say often is, Jesus' church, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just trying to follow what he's saying. And somehow over the last year I'd slipped into hard work and performance. I'm sorry, sorry about that. And as the Holy Spirit brought this to my attention so clearly, I saw it and I said, yeah, Lord, you're right. You've nailed me. God tends to be right in my experience. And I said, Lord, I still don't know what I'm doing. I am completely dependent upon you. Forgive me. And, you know, for a few months, I, I you know, with tiredness, and I've just been feeling pretty naff, to be honest, and a bit grumpy. But in that moment, all the stress and the heaviness on my spirit lifted instantly. And I felt peace and I felt light again. And I was back where I should be. And then another phrase returned to me in that moment before I came to church. I said, so what are we going to do today then, Dad? I don't know, it's easy to slip into these things. Slipping into performance, slipping into effort. Thirdly, it's all about, the religious spirit is all about what I do and not who I am. And this is a danger point where we are validated in our walk with God by how well we do, rather than how well we are in God. Now for a worship leader, you're only as good as your last worship set. For the preacher, you're only as good as your last preach. For the kids' work leader, only as good as that session went. Making teas and coffees, was the coffee any good? Of course it is, it's Jubilee. So it may be that you're still serving, but and you're reading your Bible, you're going to church, you're praying every day, but these things become like religious duties, and it's not coming from a deep and loving relationship with God anymore. And in my experience anyway, frightening it can get into the heart of people that are leading or taking responsibility. And then it becomes all about position. And it comes about being affirmed by those around us or not. And not only do you only become as good as your last public performance, you live under a constant pressure. It's easy to detect this one, though. You just need to ask yourself some questions. How hungry am I for God? How thirsty am I for His presence? Because if you are moving into that whole area of justification by works, it's not about that anymore. It's not about the relationship. It's not about a hunger and a thirst and a pursuit of God. It's not about your passion. It's actually just about getting the job done. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you to repent and ask him to renew your passion for him. One of the Things that's bad to say to somebody who's suffering under religious spirit accusation is, you need to pray more. 
Because they'll instantly go and start trying to pray more and then it's fine, it's impossible. Now, if you're in that position, just say, God, will you give me back my desire? I'm sorry I've stepped into works. Give me back my passion. Give me back my love. Because we only love him because he first loved us. The relationship is initiated and then kept by him. So if that's you, I just want to encourage you to ask God to do that. You can't make yourself desire God with religious duties. It's his spirit that leads us to Jesus. So ask him to do it. And fourthly, it's all about faking it until we make it. You know, religious people know all the Christian lingo. They know how to act. They know how to make themselves appear to be in a good place with God in certain settings. And some will even use this act to gain influence in church circles. But, you know, none of us can keep this up for long. Those who depend on this kind of superficial superficial personality projection are merely being religious and will not have the sustainability to deal with the hurt and the pain and the disappointments of life. And it results in a kind of hypocrisy in which they act righteous on the outside, but inside they're filled with all kinds of anger and resentment and envy. Guys, you just don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. We can be honest with each other and say, actually, things are not great at the moment. Please help me. Pray for me. So those are four characteristics of a religious spirit. Uh, There are many more, but I thought it was too depressing to do any more. (laughs) But you can see any of these in a person who's operating a religious spirit, judgmentalism, self-righteousness. Pride, criticism, legalism, perfectionism, division, error, doctrinal falsehood, unbelief, confusion, false holiness, salvation by works, guilt, condemnation, fear of God, unhealthy, uh, fear of God, but an unhealthy sense of that, and intolerance, especially intolerance of others. And I know that to some degree we can all slip into these. And if you're aware of any slippage in your life, why don't we just get that right with God now? Why don't we just come to God right now and put things right? I'm just going to give you a moment to do that. Let's just, we don't have to bow our heads actually, but if that helps, let's just come to God and just confess to God, Lord, I have been operating in a wrong spirit when it comes to my church life. Lord Jesus, please will you forgive me? And will you return my desire for you? I renounce this wrong operation in the spirit. And I choose to pursue you and receive you with all my heart. Put me back where I should be, Lord. And Lord, help me to come clean where I need to come clean with others. I don't want to be a fake. I want to be the real thing. Thank you, Jesus. The Bible says if we confess our sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It also says confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you might be healed. And maybe you need to actually speak to somebody at the end and say, look, 
I've been struggling. Can you just hold me to account? Will you help me? Will you pray for me? In this. And sometimes we do actually get hurt in church. <laughs> and we need help to be healed and to restore relationships. So we need to repent. But in the end, there is only one solution, one antidote to the religious spirit that I just want to take you into now. And here is the first and most important kingdom secret. A deep connection with the Father. A deep connection with the Father. And as you read the teaching of Jesus, especially in this section, you'll see that it's all about the Father. In verse 1, it's about his Father's reward that should motivate us. In verses 4, 6, and 18, it's about the Father who sees. In in verse 6, it's about the Father who hears. It's about the Father who knows in verse 8. And then in verse 18, it's about the Father who is unseen, but who is in, in, he's interested in everything about us. How does that Father sound to you? One who sees, one who hears, one who rewards, one who knows, one who is interested in everything about us. That deep connection with the Father is what Jesus is all about. You know, our co- connection to the Father is what makes the difference between religion and, li- and a living relationship with God. You know, anybody can do religion. And many people the world over do religion. But there is only one way that you can connect to the Father, and that's through Jesus. So other religions have the same kind of practices, but they don't have a connection to the Father because Jesus isn't involved. (laughs) Simple. You know, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He came to start a new way of living and to bring us into a vibrant family relationship with the Father (laughs) so that we, we still give. We still give, but it's out of the outflow of thanks for the delight of our Father. We give hilariously, Paul says. We do it with hilarity. It's part of the outflowing of our hearts from a relationship with the Father. We still pray, but it's out of our relationship with the Father who already knows what we need. So we don't have to persuade him or work something up or cut ourselves to get him to hear us like the prophets of Baal. That's religious. We just come to the Father. We're seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father. So all we need to do is lean over into Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, and pray. Because we're that closely connected. We still fast. (laughs) We deny ourselves things of the world. But our desire is motivated for fasting to be with the Father, to prefer him and his presence over the distractions of the world. We choose him. We choose him. We choose him. That's fasting. And the food thing. We'll talk about that at some point. So our motivation for church is not religious observance, but devotion to the Father who's made church possible by sending his son to draw together a community of brothers and sisters who are growing in family resemblance to our Father in heaven. Or as Chris so neatly put it last week, the ultimate goal is that we are Jesus to people so that even though they may not know God the Father, they're forced to admit they are just like their dad. I love that. Thanks for that, Chris. We're growing to be more and more like our dad. Now, that's a completely different motivation for church, growing together to be more like the Father. So how's your connection with the Father today? What's motivating you in your religious observance? Church. 
Jesus tells us not to settle for the reward of the praise of man when we seek to live out our faith amongst other believers. Why? Because the Father wants to reward us himself. He wants us to know the pleasure of his reward for us. The, the pleasure of relationship with him. He wants it to be like with Jesus. He wants to say over each one of us what he said over Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. These are my children. I'm well pleased. He wants to reward us with his pleasure. So don't get it from men. He wants to reward you. So often I've gone and done. In fact, as I was coming back from France, I was very tired on the aeroplane. I hadn't slept very well the whole time, actually. So I was just sort of shutting my eyes. And Father just said to me, well done, son. I was proud of you this weekend. Oh, Lord, thank you. Oh, that means more to me than all of the praises of men. Just to know your pleasure. You know, many years ago, I worked in a law firm that was owned by a Christian partnership in the centre of Birmingham. Looking back... I can see how this was really good training for working in the church now. I see that. Um, but it was really kind of weird working in a law firm amongst lots of Christians. And the thing that surprised me more than anything was how much harder it was to live distinctively as a Christian in that environment. It's far easier to work in, in a, an unbelieving environment where you just stand out more. <laughs> You know, in one place I used to work, they said, oh, don't you go and get it, don't you go out and get drunk every Friday? I said, no, no, I don't do that, I'm Christian. They said, well, that's weird. But I stood out, you know, because I don't go and get drunk all the time. But it is harder to live out your faith amongst other believers. It shouldn't be, but it is. Why? Because of the danger of hypocrisy. It's, it's just around the corner with religious people, and I mean with me. Now, with other Christians, we can be carried along by our mutual faith and lack of challenge. So it means that we can get by with very little secret life, secret connection with the Father. We can. We can just get carried along by others. But that puts us in danger of hypocrisy. That's what Jesus is saying. Be careful about this. You know, your workplace and the difficulties that we face day to day actually drive us to relationship with the Father every day. How many people have found that when we go through hard times, we tend to be closer to God, yeah? Sometimes I think he designs it that way. Oh, he's drifting off a bit. Give him a hard time. That'll bring him back. <laughs> Sometimes I think he does that, but there you go. I don't know where that is in the Bible. but We need our connection with the Father to survive in these environments, but we don't often feel that need in the church, so we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't settle, become complacent, and give in to a lower standard of relationship in our worship so that we go through the motions with no emotions. That's quite cool, I like that. We go through the emotions with no emotions of passion and loving relationship with the Father. So where are you up to in your religious practice? I'm using that word provocatively because we don't like to talk about religion, do we? But that's what this is. It's the greatest religion in the world. It's Jesus-centered. How are you doing with your religious practice? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Are you real? Let's build authentic community. A community of believers who feed from a deep and vibrant connection with the Father. That's what we want, isn't it? 
And I just want to finish with this reading from the Passion Translation. Um, I don't know if you come across that. It's not really a translation, but there you go. The Passion Version of the Bible in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. I love this. I love this. It's, it puts it really well. It says, you didn't receive a spirit church of religious duty, leading you back into the fear of never being good enough. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance, enfolding you into the family of God. And you're never going to feel orphaned, for he rises up within us, and our spirits join him in saying these words of tender affection. Beloved Father, Abba, for the Holy Spirit makes God's fatherhood real to us as he whispers into our inmost being, you are God's beloved child.